Just yawning there. Mm. <laughs> it's been a long week. <laughs> That's how to start the podcast with energy. Hi, I was just saying to Chris, I mean, haven't I have listened to 13 records this fucking week? <laughs> hey, it's your boys. Doing some cool stuff for you. Sounds a pound. Number six coming right at you. Some more great fucking records. Hey, we got <laughs> Asterix. The last one we were actually pleasantly surprised by two of them. So. Yeah, yeah, and we all agreed as well. That was, yeah. that was mm-hmm. a, a rare thing. Um, okay, so the concept, I mean, you've probably heard this before. Uh, we go to the pound store, uh, the dollar store, whatever the fuck it is you call it in your country, the ruble store. You go to the pound store and you try and get one over on your co-host by buying them a CD for a quid. Sometimes you take pity on them and get them something that you're like, ah, oh, they'll have something interesting to say about that. Other times you're just like, that guy's a prick. I'll wait to, wait, I'll wait to ruin <laughs> his week. To torture him. Um, and there was a bit of all of those uh, this week. Um, we are going to pick three albums. David, mm. uh, what is your record? Somebody bought me Block Party's sophomore record, Weekend in the City. That would be me. Certainly, <laughs> Mark. Certainly Thanks. wasn't me. Uh, Mark. Somebody, Chris, <laughs> got me Alicia's attic. Alicia rules the world. <laughs> that was a pure death, <laughs> wasn't it? What? It's like fuck you, Mark. <laughs> it's just so baffled. <laughs> Still baffled. I've listened to it completely. Yeah, you know that well. as I picked it up off the shelf as well, I turned into some old lady that was walking by. Like, fuck you again. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher, what have you got? Uh, some perfectly reasonable human being bought me Odalie by Beck. Yeah, that was me. Got a devil's haircut in my mind. 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 Yeah, and so that was like one of those ones where I'm like, actually, you might like this. Yeah, it's, I mean, straight off the bat, I know yeah. it's all right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not offensively bad. Yeah. Um, so. Who wants to go first? I went first last time, so it's not Did me. Did you? Yeah. Right, okay. Well, I'll, I'll go. I thought I'll I go. went first. No, I, was I, I think lit. Dave went first. Oh, no, it was lit. Yeah. It was lit. Oh, no. How could you forget? Yeah, <laughs> shit. I mean, I did kind of fuck that out a wee bit. I'll go first anyway, okay? Odalie by Beck. Yes. Uh, we've all heard Beck. We have. Mm-hmm. The guy's got a lot of records. Uh-huh. Still. He exists in the... Liminal space. Liminal space. Just of he exists in music, and you're like, oh, Beck exists. He's just, about like who? Who's a Beck fan? Lots of people, apparently. But um, he's a strange fish, though, isn't he? He's, won a lot of Grammys. Uh, he's, he, you know, he's got a bit of the the White Prince about him. The White Prince, <laughs> in, in the sense that he follows a fucking really weird religion, <laughs> right? Yep. Uh, his dad's famous. His his dad's famous. Uh, his mom's famous. His ma was uh, one of Andy Warhol's superstars oh, the, wow. the people that he touted um, he He's got ha- one word name He has a one word name One word name, yeah And one he spans them. a lot of genres And likes to get funky And likes to chop things up And bring bits and bobs out of hip-hop And yet he's a 
pretty decent guitarist mm-hmm. and does a lot of that kind of stuff. He's he's like Prince, but minus the blackness, hence minus the groove. Yeah, he doesn't. Ha- he has. He almost plays on the fact that he has a corny whiteness to him. Totally. You know, absolutely. And, and I think in, in that sense, he has this comedy. Cracker Prince, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good on. But then uh, he he also has big hit singles. But then he takes a lot of time with weird albums and doing weird yeah, things yeah, and, and stuff he's, like that. He's put like three records out on independent labels and stuff yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. He's he's an interesting dude. Not always in the best ways, but definitely worth talking about. Um, Beck David Hansen, actually born Beck David Campbell. Yeah, his dad, his dad is David Campbell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in Los Angeles. A big hip-hop fan from a young age, uh, despite growing up in uh, a musical background. That couldn't tell. A lot, a lot Are of you suggesting that he might have listened to the Beastie Boys? <laughs> I, I mean, they may have he appeared may, on his radar did, at some yeah. point. But, you know, he, he also listened to, he was at the Blind Lemon Jefferson or whatever, at, mm. you know, you know, deaf Willie McThompson and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. tiny Bob McBritches. She told me late last night, you don't need no mama no how. <laughs> I, I don't know. He, he got really into some old country stuff uh, at a young age, and really his music became an amalgam of that. Uh, he moved to New York City in '89. I think this is quite interesting because he joined the anti-folk movement when he got there, and this was a movement that was taking place in New York. And I, I will say as well, a bit like Mercury Rev, I, I can't imagine a world in which somebody nominates Beck for a proper unsung episode because yeah. he has later material that's really quite highly regarded, albeit it's quite difficult to get into. It's quite opaque. Um, but early on, his backstory is quite interesting. Early on, he was part of this ironic response to sort of very political, idealised grandstanding 60s folk scene. You know, people that we've covered in the past, you know, male and female, um, people had a lot to say and what they perceived as a kind of excessive seriousness and maybe condescension that, that persisted in, all the way through into the 80s in American rock and American, uh, well, Americana, shall we say. So... Beck was part of that. Um, there's people like Michelle Shock, Paleface, Kurt Kelly were all in that movement. And it was sort of typified by adopting tropes from the music but then sort of mixing that with very ironic, sarcastic lyrics, obscure lyrics, you know serial lyrics Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I remember on his first album was it Tonight the city is full of morgues and all the toilets are overflowing, there's shopping malls coming out of the walls as we walk out amongst the manure As he's dancing upon your paycheck The sails climb high through the garbage pale sky like a giant dildo crushing the sun. So it's sort of meant to ape Bob Dylan and the absurdity of Bob Dylan. You know, it's, it's like fucking, um, what's it, the Joey Cox story almost. Mm. You know, it's a bit of that. Time for some new kids to sit at the counter. Coloured kids, girls too. Girls wear trousers. What are you gonna do, Mr. Horton? But yeah, but it all had this postmodern twist to it, this, very, this, this knowingness. And that culminated in a single in 1984 called Loser, which was fucking huge. Cut it. So, 
absolutely mm-hmm. fucking huge. 340 million listens or something like that yeah. on Spotify, I think. Um, but, I mean, that, even the Spotify listens don't do it justice because it was a, just an out-and-out massive song. Well, eight, I was an MP. eight- or nine-year-old, and I loved it. Yeah. And I, like, knew all about it. And I was like, oh, absolutely stick that in my veins. I it had total song. anthemic qualities to yeah. it, despite being quite subversive. I mean, it was very alternative. It had a total Nirvana-ish... I mean, even at that stage, he sort of had his look reminded you a bit of Kurt Cobain. I mean, mm. he seemed genuinely un- uh, unconcerned with being chic or cool or attractive. He just had a real honest, apathetic sort of like slacker vibe to him. And he, he came to sort of be one of the leading lights of that slacker movement. I mean, mm-hmm. his music used to appear in a lot of the kind of slacker films. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll mention one of those later on. Um, but yeah, Loser was absolutely huge. And he brought out the debut album Mellow Gold soon after that same year, 1994. I was a fucking massive fan of Mellow Gold, much more so than I was of anything else that he brought out. Uh, I used to work in a warehouse and I remember listening to this album incessantly with my colleagues there, on the way there, on the way back. I just loved it. Really, really strange mishmash of things. Some of it like ridiculously distorted, overdriven, almost unlistenable stuff that had obviously been done in an 8-track. Others were actually quite skillful, kind of Dylan-esque country, modern country mm. things but with really outrageous lyrics um, like a giant dildo crushing the sun and all this kind of, mm. sort of stuff. I mean, I, I found it a really charming record with loads of experimentation. I don't get the feeling he ever expected any great success from it but yeah, he had it on the back of Loser, kind of foisted upon him. He was really worried that he was going to turn into a one-hit wonder. He was really concerned that that was going to be his legacy. Um, I mean, he thought that album was just a glorified collection of demos, and to some extent it really was. So he would go and do things like he would antagonise audiences with like 20-plus minute reggae versions of Loser, and he'd get like an art rock performance band to back him, who then set all their instruments on fire during the show. Things that he was quite confrontational in those early days, and I think to some extent he's still quite subversive in his weirdness. Uh, but he decided to try and get past that potential one-hit wonder thing. He wanted to at least undertake a proper serious studio project, and that was orderly. Mm-hmm. He went into the studio and decided, right, let's let's make a much more hi-fi, listenable product. Um, the singles on it were much bigger and more coherent. It uh, had a lot of that breakbeaty drum thing. Uh, we mentioned that in the, the, the previous Sounds of Pound. A, a lot of this kind of 90s breakbeat drum thing that he did, especially in the Devil's Haircut and where it's at, where the drums are very prominent. So just clap your hands. Where's that? hip-hop vibe going on there. The Beastie Boys influence is obviously huge but also vice versa. I mean, he uh, what's that producer he was working with? Um, the producers were the Dust Brothers Dust who are, Brothers who are yeah. instrumental in, in the sound of this record. So yeah, they did Paul's Boutique. They did, right? yes. And obviously and then Ill Communication came after that.
and you can hear the influences of that on Beck at this point. However, I would suggest that when Beastie Boys then went on to do Hello Nasty. I think there's a bit of reciprocity there. I think you can hear them sort of then drifting towards some of what Beck was doing. I mean, again, obviously, via the Dust Brothers. And can we also just disambiguate? The Dust Brothers are not the same Dust Brothers that went on to become the Chemical Brothers. Mm-hmm. No, they, they Chemical are, Brothers called themselves the Dust Brothers because they liked the Dust Brothers yeah, so much. Exactly. And then they were like, oh, actually, <laughs> <laughs> there can't be two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so at this point, he clearly was heavily influenced by the Beastie Boys, but I do think the Beastie Boys took note of some of the success that he had with Odelay because it was a huge record. There's there's at least three or four really, really big, prominent, recognisable singles on it. And you can also hear the legacy of not just, you know, Dust Brothers and that production technique, but specifically this album on works by everyone from The Eels, who mm-hmm. used a lot of that electronic drum thing to kind of yeah. give their music a kind of disturbing, upbeat quality, despite the fact that the subject matter was always so heavy. Um, even Marcy's Playground and Brand Van 3000, remember that Drinking in LA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Drinking in LA is like a commercial version of Beck. Somebody's just taken the formula And made a hit single from it And you heard a lot of the legacy of that I mean, Air were another band That were a big part of that But Beck, and this this, this record in particular Played played a huge part Um, Tune-wise, I mean, Devil's Haircut Is an iconic song that, to be honest Still slaps pretty hard Yeah Temperatures dropping at the rotten oasis Stealing kisses from the leprous faces That was another banger that I really like. I remember, I think I would have bought a Beck album if Loser and Devil's Haircut were on the same record. Because I remember as a, like, a, a 10-year-old going into Tower Records in Glasgow mm. and going, I really like those two songs. But then I only had £10 to spend <laughs> or f- £12. What the fuck's £10 going to get you? Remember, well, the CDs were 16 quid. Yeah, that's true. So I ended up probably just buying a Chemical Brothers album instead. But yeah, I like still a great song. It's tune. a great song, yeah. yeah mm. I mean, it's, it's a much more modern hip-hoppy sounding one. Mm. But then tracks like Hot Wax and uh, Lord Only Knows call back to the Mellow Gold stuff. You know, the, I mean, albeit Hot Wax is a very hip hop outro, very but, much so. Yeah. But they have this really tongue in cheek, sort of slide guitar, lo fi country quality, and they bring in some of the absurdist lyrics, such as I think, um, I think Lord Only Knows finishes with like going back to Houston to get me some pants, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very Beck line. Hot Wax, I'd never listened to this record actually before. Um, and weirdly this is not going to show me in good stead but Devil Without a Cause by Kid Rock sounds a huge amount like <laughs> Hot Wax by Beck no 
around way back when My Cadillac pants going much too fast Karaoke weekend at the suicide shack Community service and I'm still the Mac Shock my finger, spice my hand I've been spreading disease all across the land And I didn't know that I was like, holy shit, Kid Rock For like his non-singles on that album mm-hmm. Just ripped off that Beck track Which is weird to the me weird, The weird thing is Beck was doing the down-home country boy thing ironically Yeah, exactly, <laughs> I know definitely wasn't um, New Pollution was a really big single on this Oh man, I can't believe I, n- I haven't heard that song since I was about 11 And that sample is just so 90s Yeah It took me back to like sample listening CDs in Virgin Megastores and watching Adam and Joe. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's that's a good reference. Um, one thing about this song is that whereas some of the other ones, like I said, the, the previous two go look back the way towards Mellow Gold, this one sort of foreshadows things like Midnight Vultures that would come later where he got a little bit smoother, a little bit suaver. has that kind of like finger clicking sort of suit where like I was saying like the white prince sort of style to it I think, it, I think it's really telling of where he was going to end up um, where it's at <laughs> very famous very iconic Beck song it has almost a, a Steely Dan type Nord piano very cheesy yeah. sort of central uh-huh. line ninth track on it these are songs that I'm not massively familiar with because I didn't own this album Minus Which has this kind of gruff garage rock quality I mean there's some really fun production in it With digital clipping mm-hmm. uh, Sissy Neck, the 10th track Which I think is sort of the forgotten single of this album because it, it was released on its own and yet it didn't really chart or make as big an impression. It's not as obvious a single. Um, it really has a lot of John Spencer's blues explosion mm. to it. I mean, John Spencer went from being an out-and-out garage player, you know, after Boss Hog and all that, to his stuff became very produced and very, you know, breakbeaty, hip-hoppy, that a mixture of that bluesy funk. It had loads of distorted wails in it. That kind of thing. Also, I had the Sissy Neck single and the B-side to it was a track called Feather In Your Cap, which had been on a movie called uh, Suburbia. Which 
featured Giovanni Ribisi and a couple of other people who went on to be quite significant actors and actresses of that generation. And it was that the whole point of that film was it was just a bunch of like teens kicking around a sort of suburban sprawl, getting into various situations, some of them serious, some of them less so. I fucking love Feather in Your Cap. I mean, it's honestly one of my favourite songs of all time. It's very unbeck. It's sort of mournful and slow and druggy. It's really quite beautiful. It's it's, it's a f- fucking great bit of music. I've still got the single that I bought uh, with the original on it. Then I mean, the album finishes with stuff like Ramshackle, which has this uh, ultra subdued, sort of lo-fi, strummy, druggy, lethargic song, which I think seems like an obvious outro. So take off your coat, put a song in your throat. Let the dead beats pound all around We will the original ended with a track called Disco Box yeah. which is another big hint at the late 90s John Spencer all distorted whales That track was missed off the deluxe edition of mm. Odelay when it came out. The, 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 re, the reissue had loads of like scribbles on it as though somebody had taken the original and then graffitied it and so they'd like ripped all the labels so it was actually sold with torn labels on it and one of them was like featuring bonus track and then the label was torn off and the bonus track was removed from the, the record so it was kind of, there's loads of like kind of meta stuff in it. Um, but yeah, uh, not an album that I'd spent a lot of time with in terms of going through the, the album tracks because the singles are so fucking ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still prefer Mellow Gold, but it's a, I mean, it's a heavy influential record of that era. Mm-hmm. And I really think it left a mark on a number of people that followed it, including people as big as the Beastie Boys. Um I got, I got a couple of different highlights from you because I think this record goes in a million different directions, which is kind of why I liked it so much. Um, Derelict has got like a music box or something in the background that gives it a really sinister energy. And some really odd synth sounds and like a bizarre Eastern string sample. It's Aye. really clever, but a songwriting actually. Novocaine as well has got really interesting samples. Some really fun guitar sounds as well. And just some totally out there production on the vocals, which I quite enjoyed. <laughs> and yeah, the guitar solo at the end of uh, where it's at is just fun. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun album. It's really lo-fi in places, quite polished in others. Really hip hop heavy on the beats for yeah. sure. Samples all over the shop. Liked it more than I thought I was going to like it for mm. sure. Th- Me too as well. He's he's good. I mean, yeah. Beck's good. You don't have to like not even everything. You don't have to like much of what he does, but th- there's just a place for him. You know, he's just yeah, a definitely. He music. does his own thing, and a lot of it is good. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's this weird sort of sort of white boy ironic middle class American thing, but it works well. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah, very listenable record. Very nineties, but very listenable. 
I, also, I believe it is his best selling record. Oh yeah, and it is I, I also so, critically yeah. acclaimed. So I'm not really sure it's unsung. No, but, no, I mean it's it's definitely not unsung. But it's good. <laughs> uh, the reason I said that I think he he could feasibly feature an episode is because things like mutations, which Aye, came there, after there's it, there's a lot of has shit some, in this. Mutations has some really good songs on it. And um, I mean, Mi- uh, Midnight Vultures was pretty successful as well. Freaks flock together, making all the people scream. All right, all right, turn it up now. You know, the guy's got four, like 14 records or something like that. You know, he's, he's got a big catalogue. Sea Change, I know, is one that fans particularly like, and it's very odd. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'll go next because okay. I want to finish on a high. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, uh, well, uh, Dave, I've got fucking news for you, man. There's not a lot between the next two, man. <laughs> no, well, exactly. Um, who got me block party? That was me. That was you. Weekend in the city. Yeah, Our I, second I, album. I, I seen it and thought. Dave looks like he might like the first Block Party album, and I know a lot of people hate the second one. Yeah. So. Well, I feel like everything I know through about Block Party is through Osmosis by just. I totally I've never got into them, but I still ended up with like five tracks on my fucking MP3 player, yeah. and I still ended up playing four or five songs when I used to DJ at the student union and stuff like that. You know that they're there, and they just exist in the UK, kind of like Arctic Monkeys, I guess. Um, but shit. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I've whittled my entire block party selection down to one song, the song Ratchet. Which is a really interesting tune and had a brilliant Syriac video and Honestly, nothing else by this band has ever left a dent. And I assumed it was because I'd never invested the time. Yeah. Because, you know, like Arctic Monkeys, whilst I do not for a minute spend a lot of time listening to a lot of Arctic Monkeys stuff, other than maybe Humbug, which, I, you know, obviously I brought up on a show, I can appreciate how fucking good the band are and how good they are at doing what they do. And when mm-hmm. you listen through their records, you're like, fuck, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. And I assumed the same was true of Block Party and it's fucking not. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this an album that people didn't like? I, 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 I it mean, was I, mixed. Yeah. It went, yeah. In the, it went in the direction that people were not expecting them to go in after the first album. What, like so the first album... Many songs. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I guess, much, I. I guess the first album, you go back and listen to it. Well, what's interesting was that when it came out, it was like 2004, 2005, peak NME, indie time, mm-hmm. Arctic Monkeys, Libertines, all that. And then Block Party came out as a slightly more like legitimate London, quite serious Yeah, act. cool. Like they, Very cool. And they had post-punk qualities. Exa- and- well, that's what's interesting is like when I was listening then, I was like, oh yeah, Helicopter and Banquet are like quite sharp, interesting riffs yeah. and they're cool and like they're good indie things. You could imagine a world where a Fugazi fan would enjoy those songs. Exactly. Uh, 
funnily enough, listening to it now, to Silent Alarm, and especially those songs, I'm like, holy shit, they were just stealing wholesale off television. Mm. <laughs> and Gang of Four and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it is Gang just, of Four, a big, big, big thing. It's not paper, great man. It's not paper, great man. It's not paper, great man. But the thing is, that would have been okay, you know, because Arctic Monkey, in fact, fuck all the bands that we fucking get into do that, but it would be okay if you then did that on the basis of some sort of level of consistency and taking it somewhere. What this shows me is that this band had fucking nothing in the tank. Well, I I, I mean, it's a second album syndrome in many ways because, you know, they were young guys and they put together this sharp, vibrant first record, which isn't actually as good as people say because there's quite a lot of flat bits in it, but it, it, it does at least it sound vital and it has an identity. Yeah. Whereas this record, I feel like they've been given time in the studio, they've been given money, they've been given keyboards, they've been given legitimacy as well and then they've gone in a studio and they've gone oh fuck we don't have any ideas yeah I mean yeah. apparently the, the story is that they wanted to move away from being a guitar band hence electronics yeah so fucking stupid um, well the problem is yeah. that they are absolutely terrible at choosing good sounding synths <laughs> like throughout and funnily enough they did a record quite recently the last four or five years and there's a synth lead on it and it sounds like fucking Fisher Price toy wow. it's so bad I thought they were taking a piss this album sounds really dated because of the the keyboard sounds on it mm-hmm. and I mean you're talking about the amount of pressure on them uh, Silent Alarm which came out in 2005 two years mm-hmm. before this was album of the year in NME 2005 yeah, you know? so it, yeah, it yeah. Was they were like hugely revered they were the yeah. sort of legitimate kings of indie in 2005 and here's the reason there's so many fucking copies of this as well in the pound store because this despite the fact that this actually leaked online mm-hmm. a good few months before it came out which should have really damaged the sales it still got to number two yeah. in the UK charts um, 48,000 copies Copies got it to number twelve in the Billboard two hundred. That's kind of mad that forty eight thousand yeah. copies mm-hmm. in two thousand and seven could get you that high. But um, given that Silent Alarm had multiple identifiable singles, yeah, this album is one big fucking shrug, and it's aged. I would say appropriately. Well, the only single that it has on now really was put on later on the it's re-release Flux. is Flux. And I remember dance song as well. Yeah, and I remember playing Flux at indie discos because it, it kind of works as an indie disco. But when you listen to it just as part of the record or just on its own, it's so jarring. It's pretty jarring. Yeah. And, and like the production is so binary. It's like everything's just loud. Yeah. And there's no dynamic range no. to it. That, that's a really, really odd inclusion in that reissue because that's what I was listening to and it really caught me off guard. Yeah. The yeah. only one I knew was, um, was it uh, che- Hunting Witches? Is uh-huh. that right? Yeah, yeah. Sure, 
a really unremarkable single in its own right. It's passable as an album track, but it's really not of the standard. Prayer is maybe the one that stands out on me on this record. That was a big single. Got some ideas on it. Um, I find his vocals very annoying though <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm anti-English or something But his <laughs> accent does my fucking tits in But I, there's something really smug in London about this record as well Did The whole fucking band are the product of overinflated London yeah. egos Man, it's the, not, not them individually, I don't mean them as people I have no idea in that respect But I just mean the band is a great embodiment of that artificial inflation yeah. of London bands. This is not a great band. If they were on the road alongside other bands, yeah, they can play a bit. Like, I remember being able to see seeing that they could play, but the mm-hmm. songs are not there to really garner them the, the acclaim that a band from the fucking sticks would have gotten. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And and it, it's just it's it's the perfect bubble. It's it's the perfect bubble and everybody the Emperor's New Clothes style trying to pretend that this isn't a fucking turkey of a record, yeah. you know. They, they, it's a very Shoreditch album. It's very it's like mm-hmm. Skins as well, or they try to be oh, this yeah, like absolutely. Skins era, like party, or, or we're going away to Brighton for the weekend, Fucking album, or whatever. Core, yeah. But it's <sighs> man, I mean, the, the ninth track in it, I still remember, was their biggest US hit, and that only mm-hmm. got to number 24. The US had a more accurate perspective on this Aye. band. It's a really bad song as well. Derivative '80s fucking weepy indie. Well, that's it. I, like by the, I think that track and like by the end of it, it's they're sounding a bit like you too. That's not unsurprising because they work with Jack Knife Lee on this, who yeah. had, who had produced uh, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb by U two, Final Straw by Snow Patrol, and Snow Patrol like you know, and he was a guy who was whose star was rising. He since went on to work with massive artists like yeah. I said, REM and and more U two stuff, Biffy Clyro. But it's amazing how no matter how many bad Taylor fucking Swift, records these people like, put in, put out, the guy's obviously got technical skills, but he can't fucking commandeer or help improve a fucking crap album. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, I just legitimately assumed that this band was going to be better than this. The whole thing is such a non-event. I think if you want to really appreciate how fucking depressingly unimportant this record is, listen to the eighth track, which is called Kreuzberg. It's it, oh, it's it's just something that barely happens. Yeah, like I I was listening to this and I skipped through it and then I went back and I was like, oh, oh, literally nothing happened. I no. thought I skipped past the thing and I was like, no, it's it's oh. stunning that it's it's on there. It's on the album. Yeah, yeah. Nobody in the, the fucking studio or the management or the label said, oh guys, that that one can go. Nobody. There was no quality control. It's all about the promo. It's all about the reputation. It's all about the hype. Nobody yeah. gives a fuck. What you know what's funny like. is I think this came out the same year as the second burial record both albums try and be like oh this is like a london nighttime record mm. 
you know, one you can listen to on the subway and what have you. But like, this is so shit compared to Burial. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, the thing is, right, we're, we're, we're about to move on to a very, very, very different record, <laughs> which is also very, very fucking bad. Yes. But the difference in credibility is astronomical, right? So yep. this is an album and this is a band that were revered as like the cool new wave. Yeah, it could it. probably still headline a festival and sell 50,000. Yeah, they're still like, revered. They, you know. We know from first-hand experience, I mean, Mark, I know you weren't big into fucking indie, but we, we've seen hundreds of fucking bands that were around in uh, the, in oh, the oh, years yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that are far better bands than this yeah. band and would have produced far better records given half of the fucking budget. Yeah. And it just... Underlines how fucking inept that record industry is, especially the way that it is stuck in fucking London. Mm-hmm. But also, its enablers on the you know in the other towns and cities, including Glasgow, including up north, yeah. including down. I mean, people they're so fucking lazy. They were just they were given the cool torch, yeah, and they held on to it longer than they it was were an open to. goal, man. They didn't yeah, even yeah. kick the ball with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Mark. Feel free to bin it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've that's what I've done with this. That's what I've done with this record. <laughs> uh, Mark, what is this record? Alicia's Attic, the album, the debut album. Alicia rules the world. Don't cry, my precious one, cause I ain't got no sympathy for you, and I am. I feel like I wanna bite his head off. Yeah, that'd be fun. No, I mean they've got some other banging albums that followed this, obviously. Uh, yeah, they do. <laughs> now, I, right? I wanted. I came in with positive vibes to this because I was like, because I, I don't know. I, I kind of fondly remember the singles off this, and I was like, this is going to be like a cheesy, happy pop teenage girl record. But you know, it might actually it's be not, all right. It's really not that. It's really not that. <laughs> no, it's, it's really well, not that. It's sure, it's I mean, this definitely me, not. This that. left me fucking yearning for Ace of Base. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is. is that when you bought it, Ace of Bases? Yeah, there's, there's an Ace of Base album up there. I've got it for primary research, guys, honestly. Yeah. Do you know, see, see if this was a bubblegum pop record, I would have liked it a whole fuck of a lot more yeah, than I yeah, like yeah. this album, by the way. Yeah, so it's two sisters, um, Karen and Shelley, oh. who, by the way, were also known at one point as Karen and Shell, mm. but that the single they released is that bombed, so they changed mm. the name to Alicia's Attic. Their dad was a famous musician of some sort. Brian Poole and the Tremolos. Brian Poole and the Tremolos, yeah, for the 60s. Yeah, I mean, this is quintessential Poundstone music, isn't it? It is the exact definition of this entire concept, isn't it? (laughs) Well, have we ever dealt with a record that is so... Its only existence is because of another record like this? You mean... Jagged Little Pill? Yes, I was going to say, yeah. Jagged Little Pill came out in 1995, sold 50 million records... And then record labels went, holy shit, women buy albums. (laughs) And, oh, wow, okay. And then Sheryl Crow, I mean, Tori Amos, blah, blah, blah. But, like, Alanis Morissette put that to the mainstream and record executives realised that women had a voice 
and they went right who sounds like Lannis Morissette who's talking about sad woman things and Alicia's attic sad woman things well that's literally it (laughs) and there's a song on this I think it's track two intense yeah Intense. It is literally. It is full Mor- Alanis Morissette. Yeah, totally, absolutely, man. I've written her name here. It has a weird full Morissette delivery. Yeah, well, it's I've, not even full Morissette. It's, it's pure it's Morissette. The hook from what I really want, I think, is the song on Jagged Little. But Pill. it only manages to maintain the um, imitation very briefly. Like the, the album, I agree, it's probably aiming for that, but it falls so far short of it that I think by the time they were releasing like the third single and stuff, was it uh, in, 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 Invincible and Vulnerable? And yeah, Invincible. Irresi- that, irresistible. The, irresistible. Whatever. Indestructible, sorry, there's so many many eyes. (laughs) But but, but by that point, I think they'd kind of given up on that and realised that it wasn't really working as that, and they'd gone for something totally different. Because even like the video for that is so different. It's so yeah. So it's 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 beyond even like Wigfield. It's it's just Mm. this weird crap computer animated thing that they're they're no longer going for cool alternative sort of. Well, I think they got usurped by fucking All Saints. All Saints Mm. came along and All Saints is edgier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're edgier than this. much, much edgier. Um, I mean, there is probably an AI right now that could write this album if you just gave it Jagged Little Pill. Mm-hmm. You know, it could probably actually replicate something better than this. That's that's a damning indictment, I think. Um, it's got a weird like session vocal style to it. Uh-huh. Have you, you notice that they even even in the mix sometimes, and they've got this tippy tappy drum sound they use all the way through. And that sample of the tambourine that has to be on every song. It's not hi hat. It's a fucking tambourine to make sure people know that it's upbeat. Um, and th- th- those vocals, though, are they sit so far out at, at, at times. It's it's very amateurish. I noticed it in a couple of tracks in particular. That Alicia rules the world. Which was a single, you know, a reasonable single that I remembered did fairly well, but it's surprisingly sloppy in production and things. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, just, I thought it would be much. more I remember, like, there are there are two hooks on the record that I kind of remember from when I was a kid, and I was like, oh, and that's why I kind of went in here slightly positively because I was like, maybe those hooks lend something more, but those hooks are like so little diamonds amongst shit. Even the songs that those hooks are in are bad. Mm-hmm. I just remember those hooks from the radio, mm-hmm. and that's it. I mean, a couple of things kind of stuck out to me about this band, right? Is the Wikipedia uh, entry is surprisingly sparse, <laughs> right? To the point where it says they were formed in 1996, which is the year this album came out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, they're clearly, like, and they wrote all the songs in this record, which is. I'd probably a damn indictment of their talent as songwriters, but I would say, however, they, ha- they have since gone to become songwriters for people like Kylie Minogue and all that. So here, I think I think they're a pure fucking record label slap together studio project. Like, you'll, no fucking question about it. I actually don't 
Really? I don't. Yeah, so I, I have a different take on this, and it's a take that I think feeds into something we've said elsewhere before. So you're talking about Karen and Shelley went on. I mean, Karen's got 35 top 20 hits to her name, right? Mm. For Sugar Babe, she's written four albums, Will Young, three albums, Janet Jackson, So Solid Crew, Boyzone, uh, Danny Minogue, Kylie Minogue, six albums. I don't know why I put Danny and Kylie in that order. <laughs> Maybe that gives away some sort of bias personally. Um, Giorgio Moroder. She wrote a fucking song for Giorgio Moroder called Right Here, Right Now. <laughs> Uh, David Guetta, Lily Allen, Holly Valance, and Peter Grant, mm-hmm. the Celtic midfielder. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shelley uh, joined the band called Red Sky July. She married the guitarist from the band Texas, uh, wrote for Boyzone, Ronan Keaton, Mark Ronson, Janet Jackson, Jack Savaretti, and fucking Massive Attack. She wrote, she wrote for fucking Massive Attack. Apparently she was a fucking lyricist with them, right? What I think is interesting about this and where I would disagree is I think this is genuinely their music. Um, I think it's somehow... Maybe, well, I didn't say, they did write it, though. I think there was no question about that. No, but what that. I mean is, I think it's been maybe co-financed with not a lot of expectation and it's done better than expected. And they clearly have an ability and a, a knack for certain um, standards of pop writing. Like they, certain, they certainly have some sort of insight into what it takes to write pop songs, but they don't have, just within themselves, the wherewithal to then turn that, convert that into a hit single. Certainly their image, their delivery, their, their musicianship, charisma, what Ever wasn't enough to make them like a huge success in their own right in the long term or to make the music really last. And this is like the Damon Albarn debate mm. with, with Taylor Swift, right? Because Taylor Swift clearly does have the charisma, does have the delivery, does have the, the confidence and the panache to make songs work. But frankly, there is no fucking way Taylor Swift is writing them. And that's that's why this whole world of blending songwriters with artists you know, co-writing maybe at a fucking push, you write a word, get a third. But Alicia's Attic and even people like Sia maybe sits in the middle. People like Lady Gaga to some extent sit in the middle. But these big hits, it would be it, the chances of having that very elusive charisma and delivery combined with the ability to write like these, these women can write is so infinitesimally small that that is where these mega pop projects come from now. It just doesn't track with history at all. The best, most successful pop writers who did manage to break through, Phil Collins, look like shit, would never get signed and released now versus the greatest looking, you know, the your, your what are they called, the pussycat dolls and stuff. They, they don't write music. The chances of having somebody that looks and can spend that much time in the fucking gym and have that kind of dietary advice and then also spend all this time developing their musicianship, writing these things, sitting in the studio, labouring over these tracks, it's not there. It takes a huge machine to make these hits. And Alicia's Attic, I think, are an example of how these people are clearly very, very talented but couldn't create the full package. They got close, they did well, but in hindsight, they're not taken very seriously. Mm -hmm. They needed to go and then write for people like Kylie Minogue, Boyzo and all those bands that had the other side of what was necessary to become a a proper pop sensation in the modern world. And honestly, I just think people that deny that because they fucking want to believe a certain thing about an artist are just being very naive. Except this is a collaborative 
capitalist enterprise and enjoy the music if you enjoy the music but don't fucking kid us all on that it's all organic so I don't actually think they were I, I, I think if you were a record label you wouldn't put a package like that together like Alicia's Attic I think you would make it more polished I think it seems like they probably did that and it was a surprise hit and they got some help um, that's my two cents fair enough um, well the album was shit so <laughs> I think we can all agree it's fucking shit yeah um, <laughs> the album is fucking trash that is pretty I'm bad sure Damon Albarn has thoughts about it <laughs> you think he's even heard it Mm. Yeah, I don't I think, think it's probably on top of the pops. You couldn't avoid Alicia's. I mean, yeah. there's probably some nexus where they were on the same episode of the pops. <laughs> yeah, something. Well, that sure was a fun time. Yeah. So I think we agree that uh, Beck won, and I, I mean, I would honestly probably put Alicia's Attic above Block Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Block probably. Party are a better musical project, but the sheer amount of needless hype and inflation really fucks me off. My question to you guys is um, What's more annoying The overused disco style indie drum beat On the Block Party record Or the overused 90s drum machine Used in the Leashes Attic record <laughs> When you're asking that question You're in a bad place yeah, I, know. I know But we've just had to fucking sit through that So you might as well answer <laughs> Let's it. leave that bad place alright <laughs> Then you go We've put ourselves through the mill Once again For your benefit Thanks a lot Bye Bye